Come in, everyone, come in, come in. So I thought just a few kind of housekeeping things before we get started this morning might be in order. So welcome to the beginning of nine weeks of, of Parenting for Life. And so there is a student edition workbook if you'd like to get this because the teachers are going to teach pretty much the workbook. So because it's, that's the curriculum. So that's our goal is to really teach what's here. So you can follow along. And, you know, I always tell the students and people I teach is, you know, pretty much it's, it's kind of what you put into it, you get out of it sometimes. So if you want to look at things ahead of time, there's, there are great resources. So what I was going to show you, for example, today's lesson, we're going to be on the parents' priorities. You can open here to page one if you've got it. And here's the curriculum. And there are blanks in there that... I will give you the answers for, promise. <laughs> and uh, we'll work through this together. There's scripture here. There's plenty of room to make notes. And as you go through the lesson, you'll notice them referencing uh, different appendices, for example. So one of the nice things about this book, too, is if you go to the very back, there are a whole lot of very helpful appendices with additional learning material that's very rich and helpful if you want to study that. So that alone is a good reason also to have this book. And there are a lot of references uh, throughout each lesson also about different books or things that, that you could read. And at the end of every lesson, you're going to see, and I know everybody's we're kind of first day, first lesson, so we're getting into the swing of things. But at the end of every lesson, there's going to be something called pondering the principles. So these are good thought-provoking questions about the material that was covered in the lesson. So ideally what you would do is read through the lesson ahead of time and think through it and work through the questions and that way the teacher, if there's time, we could, we could answer some of these questions. We, there's, for example, there's a nine long questions. We'll never get through all of those. But if there were some that you'd like to talk about, we could go through those or the teacher can pick out some of the most important ones. So anyway, that's the book. They are in the, our bookstore, you know, at the front and they're $13. So anyway, and this is material that's put out by Grace Community Church. So uh, it's, it's their curriculum on parenting. So that's where we are today. So just to give you a little, little housekeeping, a little help there is the value of this, this book. But if you don't want to buy it or whatever, we're going to teach it anyway. You just won't have the appendices and all those things. So lesson one today is kind of a foundational lesson. We're going to talk about parents' priorities. Can everybody see that screen okay? I tried to make the print big enough that you could see the slides and... Uh, so, Jim, you're coming in. I'm going to give you, ask you all the questions I'm telling you. <laughs> Today, I think, is really what we call a foundational, basic kind of lesson. But it's a it's very important, critical lesson about parenting. Uh, we're going to talk about some of these basic, foundational commitments that have to be in your life. Um, that is to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to go through each of these, to your spouse, and then to your family, which are your children, and then to others through ministry, that is, others in the church and others outside the church in evangelism. So I think these are the absolute critical things because if you don't build this foundation strongly, then parenting is not going to happen successfully. And parenting is really kind of an outflow, we're going to talk about in a moment, of all of these commitments in your life. So we're going to talk about a couple of important principles first. And again, we're going to kind of follow your manual. Uh, but the first important principle we need to talk about is the Bible. And understand that the teaching in the Bible is comprehensive. And when we come to parenting, that's important, right? There are a lot of very good books written out there. Our manual, our guide references a lot of the good books written about parenting. But those books are good only as they follow the gold standard, right? And the gold standard is the Word of God. So we talk in theology about this concept of the sufficiency of Scripture, right? That, su that Scripture is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness, for serving God, and for raising children. The Scriptures teach us those things. Let's look at an important passage. So if you've got your Bible, I'm going to open up 
to a passage we all know very well, 2 Timothy 3. This is one of the most important texts as we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and the Word of God in our lives. Actually, I'm going to start back in um, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. You know, think about Paul's writing to Timothy, and these are the words of his heart to Timothy. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's let's just stop there just a moment because we're talking about parenting and raising children. There's an important insight there that Timothy knew the scriptures from childhood, that he had had those inculcated into his life all throughout his childhood. This was not something new that he was learning. His parents were doing a good job, right? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So Paul lays it out for us right there. All scripture is given by, it's God-breathed, right? It's given by inspiration of God. So that's what's so unique to about the word of God. All the other books that are written are not God-breathed. They're not the inspired word of God. But this Bible that we have is God-breathed. God worked through men, Paul, Peter, James, the author of Hebrews, all Isaiah, the prophets, but the Holy Spirit breathed through them. So the words we have are inerrant, infallible. They're God's delivered revelation to us. And Paul makes it very clear here that they are adequate. They are what we need for all the things in life. And Peter also, if you want to flip over to Second Peter, just head back towards Revelation there a little bit, a little bit past James. Second Peter 1. Peter has a lot also in his writings to say about the Word of God. Verse 3, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And those promises are encapsulated in the word of God, aren't they? So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. I love this quote by Wayne Grudem too, and Wayne, he's referencing back to um, the Second Peter chapter, or the Second Timothy verse. Here Paul indicates that the one purpose for which God calls Scripture to be written is to train us that we might be equipped for every good work. If there is any good work that God wants a Christian to do, and it includes parenting, right? This passage indicates that God has made provision in his word for training the Christian in it. Thus, there is no good work that God wants us to do other than those that are taught somewhere in scripture. It can equip us for every good work. That's the confidence we have when we come to the scriptures. Again, it's not that we don't value good teachers and good books, but we always hold it up to this canon of the scripture. And their books are only good as they are applying the truth of the scriptures. And that's the filter we always have to use. So that's a first important principle is as we come into this and we talk about parenting, is that we're committed to the word of God. We're committed to what the word teaches us in terms of successful parenting. And then the second thing is that parenting, we have to look at God's truth and his work in our lives because it is not an entity unto itself. So that is, it's not a silo that's separate from everything else in our lives. In fact, this is my conviction that parenting for believers is always, it's always in the context of our faith and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As everything in our lives as Christians should be, whether it's our work, whether it's, we'll talk about our spouses in a moment, But everything we do ought to be an outflow and working of our lives. Parenting is truly an outflow of the working of the Holy Spirit and living out what the Holy Spirit has done in us. Again, that's why the Word of God has to be so rich in our lives. It has to be so inculcated in our lives because it must flow out of our lives to our children. I love that verse in John. I just think about this a lot. John 7, 38, where the Lord Jesus talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
if you guys want to turn there, I'll read it to you though. John 7, 38. And he was at the feast and Jesus said, I'll, I'll start in 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, Jesus is glorified. The Spirit lives in us, right? So this is how it ought to be with us as parents, that it ought to just flow out of our lives, the work of the Holy Spirit, into the lives of our children. So let's talk now. We've laid a couple of principles. The importance of the Word of God, the importance of the Spirit's work in our lives coming out and flowing into the lives of our children. Let's talk now about these specific commitments that we have to have as parents. So number one, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That is, to the triune God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is part of the triune God. So, one of the first verses that we have to look at are the verses Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. So let's turn over there for just a moment. Who knows what's in Exodus 20, 1 through 17? Ten Commandments. Commandments. By the way, this is the equip class, so we can do a little Bible quizzing. What's the theme of the book of Exodus? Think back. Redemption, right, redemption. Why? Because God redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt, right? We won't read all the Ten Command, all this passage, but let's start in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." So the first important principle we have here is who rules in our life? Who is the God in our life? And the Lord made it very plain, didn't he, to those, the nation of Israel, that they had lived, right, in Egypt where there were many gods, right? There was polytheism practiced. And they had actually probably worshipped and been involved in some of that idolatrous worship. We know it was a mixed multitude, too, that came out of Egypt. But the Lord made it clear that I am the only God. I am the living and true God. So the first question that they want us to think about, we're going to think about this morning is, who is the Lord in our life? Who is the God in our life? And I just ask you this, who or what things can become gods in our lives that replace him in our lives? Career. Career, yeah. That's very big, right? That, and how does career become a God in your life and replace the Lord? Yeah. So they didn't say you hear she's you pour everything into your career and it can become your God. Yeah. It can become, you can squeeze out our time with the Lord, right? You can squeeze out our Bible reading and our prayer time. You can squeeze out time with our families. You know, talking about parenting, right? What other things can become idols in our lives? Family itself. itself. That's good, James. In, in, In what way? That's excellent. And that's, a, that's absolutely, among Christians, that's a risk we have is idolizing family over the priority of 
God first. You know, it's interesting. We talk about commitments too. These commitments are in a hierarchical order, right? We're starting with God. We're next going to talk about spouse, and then what's third? Family is third, right? So these are in a, a very specific, important order. So that's that's excellent. What else? Is, yes, Jim. Stuff. That's exactly right. And it's really a a temptation because of the culture, the opulence, the wealth we live in, the things that keep us busy. It could be good things, uh, but they can become idols in our lives. Yeah. They'll just turn to dust. Yeah. So let's think about what the Lord Jesus Christ said about this. Let's turn over to Matthew 22. And let's look at verse 37. So this is an interesting passage in Matthew. So if you started back in verse 23, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always trying to entangle Jesus, weren't they? They were always trying, they were envious of him, they hated him, but they, and they were always trying to trip him up and... Um, to snare him. So the, the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection, had just come to him, and they thought they had the absolute... I, you, how many of you old Star Trek fans? The Kobayashi Maru, right? They thought they had that, right? And they thought they had the question, they thought they had the situation that even Jesus couldn't solve, and that was out of the law. You see, there was a man who married a wife, and uh, he died, and he had, there were seven brothers, and instead of seven brides for seven brothers, I guess it was seven brides, seven brothers for one bride, right? And they all died, and then she died with no children, and so whose who's, uh, husband and wife situation will there be in heaven? And Jesus said, you err because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And Jesus just totally tripped them up and told them that you're in total error because you don't know the scriptures. So then the Pharisees decide it's their shot now, right, to come to Jesus. So a lawyer who was wise in the law comes to Jesus and in verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So what did our Lord say should be the heart and soul and mind and it's the strength of our lives? What is that? What should we be doing? Loving the Lord. That's right. That should be the center of our lives. It's not our work. It's not our kids. It's not even our spouse. All of those things flow out of our love for God. But first and foremost, this should be our love for God. Jesus actually is quoting what's called the Shema Israel. You guys know this. It's back in, let's go ahead and read that. Let's flip back to Deuteronomy because we're going to talk about this a lot here in the next few minutes. Deuteronomy 6. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, right? And Moses is reminding them of the law. But the heart of God is so much in the book of Deuteronomy. So let's start with Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son, and listen, he's talking to parenting here. This is why this is so important. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his commandments and his, command, his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may Great, multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the Lord said to love him, to teach these things, and it should be everywhere in their lives, everywhere in their lives, his commandments and his love. But this flows right out of the Old Testament commands from the Lord. But Jesus said we should love with him, and the word all is important, with everything in our heart, everything in our soul, everything in our mind. And the the important point here is that our commitment should be total, it should be an intense abandonment, an intense embracement of the Lord God. This is one thing I, I think about a lot is enjoying God. How much do you enjoy God in your walk with him? How much does your love for him flow out of your fellowship with him and your love for him? It should be strong. We have to be continually learning about God too. I think the more we learn about God, the more we desire him. The more time we spend in the word, the more time we find out who he is, the more it drives our passionate love for him. So I challenge you in that. I challenge you that time in the word every day is not a legalistic thing if you love the Lord your God. You long to get into the word. That's what I would tell you. Even the book of Deuteronomy, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, you see the compassion and mercy and grace and goodness of God all throughout that. You learn about him and then you long to know him. In fact, then you long to be with him. And that's the joy of being in his word and continually learning about him. We won't look at the Numbers passage just for time's sake, but the Numbers 15 passage, I can just read that to you very quickly. The Numbers 15 passage is interesting because a man had just been out gathering wood on the Sabbath, right? And they didn't know what to do with him and they kind of put him in jail, so to speak, right? And then the Lord said, he broke the Sabbath, he has to be stoned. And so just following that passage, the Lord said, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them, that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot." So it's that temptation. The Lord said, mark it on your clothes. He had it for the children of Israel. So you remember me. And he did it out of his grace and mercy that they would not follow idols and follow into the condemnation of the man that they just actually had to stone for breaking the Sabbath. So let's talk a little bit about, about the passionate heart of a believer. And we're gonna look at some of these verses that are in your your text and talk about what it means to have a heart that pants after God. So the first psalm here is Psalm 42.1, which is just a beautiful psalm. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. And that's what we've been talking about, is developing that heart that pants, that longs to be there in God's word. I've been in a tree stand many, many, many hours, deer hunting and elk hunting, and I've listened to them as they come into the water. You know, they don't, they don't water all day long because they wait till dusk because it's safer, and they'll come into the water, and this just sounds like a vacuum cleaner just sucking up the water. It's, it's amazing to me, but they literally pan after, they have to have it to survive. And that's really what the psalmist is saying is as that deer comes and sucks up the water so it might be sur survive, so my soul pants and needs you, O oh God, to sustain myself and my life. So let's look at a few of these verses and let's think about, I'm going to ask you as, as I read them to think about what this teaches us about developing a heart that desires God. So let's look at Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. This is a beautiful Psalm of Asaph. Does anybody know the context of this Psalm? What was Asaph dealing with here? What was he bemoaning early in this Psalm? 
the apparent prosperity of the wicked, isn't it? He looks at the wicked and says, God, they're just prosperous, right? And then he has that revelatory moment, doesn't he? When he came into the house of God. Whom, and let's read verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So what is Asaph teaching us about developing a heart of passionate love for God? This is a quip. You guys can, you can, I'm at, you guys can talk. <laughs> so if you read that, what does Asaph say here? My flesh and heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Yeah. If my heart fails, I may die, right? My flesh may fail, but he is our redeemer. He is our salvation. He is everything. He has promised us all that we need for life and godliness. I had a good friend one time uh, years ago in a, in a Bible church, Bev and I went to in, in Richardson, and, and um, he lost his job. And I remember looking at Hal. He, he, Hal was my tennis buddy. We played doubles and tournaments, things together. And, and uh, I said, I, you know, I really fell for him. I said, Hal, I said, how you doing? You lost your job. He said, and you have to understand, this was not trite. He said, Craig, I have Christ. What else do I need? You know, that's, that's the passion of Asaph. That's the passion of a believer who trusts. You know, we, we look at the wicked, what's going on in the world, but we look at God and we realize he supplies everything we need. Okay, let's look at Luke 10. We're not going to look at all of these just because we don't have time, but let's look at Luke 10, verse 38. And again, let's think about priorities and about how we develop this passionate heart for God. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Interestingly, whose sisters were Martha and Mary? Lazarus, Lazarus yeah, that's important. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So what do these verses teach us about priorities and about loving God with all our heart? Christ should be our priority. That's right. There are always those things in the world, right? There, there are always things that have to be done. But what is the priority? You know, I, I'm the best illustrator because I know myself, right? But, you know, the other day I was getting ready to start call at the hospital, and I had like 20 minutes. And I needed, I hadn't talked to my oldest son for a little while, and I, I had so many things I needed to do. But, you know, you think, those things don't matter. I need to talk to my son and encourage him. That's the kind of thing we have to set priorities in life because the world will crowd out all the other stuff. We just have to set priorities and do them. Let's look at Luke 14 while we're in Luke. And verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if, it's, if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless for either the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is our Lord teaching us in these verses about, we could say, the cost of discipleship and following God with all our heart and soul and mind? It's costly, isn't it? I mean, that's the point Jesus is making. I mean, Jesus said we have to lay down our lives. We have to take up our cross. Everybody knew what a cross was. Cross meant to die, right? I mean, that's like saying take up the electric chair and follow. You know, it's, it's, it meant to die. That's what Jesus is saying. It costs you everything. In fact, that's what Christianity does is in, in essence, it costs us everything. So, and that's what Paul is saying, right, in Galatians 2.20. Who knows Galatians 2.20 off the top of your head? Yes. I sorry. Yeah, excellent. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, there is that sense we are crucified together with him. We are dead to this world. We are dead to the things of this world. That's the kind of heart we should have. Colossians 1.10. We'll read this one last verse. But these are rich verses for us to think about the heart that follows passionately after God. Colossians 1.10 So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what are we to do as believers? We're crucified to the flesh, and what are we, how are we to walk? What does Paul tell us here? Walk how? In a manner worthy of the Lord. To do what? What's he saying? To please him. That's right. We want to walk in a way that brings honor and glory to him and everything. And that's also in parenting too, isn't it? But that's how we are to walk as believers in this world bearing fruit in everything we do, bearing fruit in our children, in their lives, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, there's that thing. It's growing continually in the knowledge of God. So these are the kind of the commitments. Here are some of your blanks, right? So these are, if we kind of summarize what we've been talking about is we're committed to the Word of God as sufficient rule of our lives, and we're also committed passionately to the God of the world. We've died to this world. We passionately love him and we follow him. So let's talk about the second commitment. So the second commitment is to your spouse. Again, this is a hierarchical order because the first commitment has to be to the Lord. If your life is passionately serving him, you're obeying him, you're bearing fruit in your life, it will show in this part of your life too with your spouse. So the first thing we have to talk about is the uniqueness of the marriage relationship. And it goes without saying too that we know what the word of God teaches, that this is for a man and a woman, that we stand countercultural, we stand with the scriptures, that that's the only relationship that God approves. That's the only relationship God blesses is between the man and the woman. And as God taught us, in Genesis 2, let's flip way back to the beginning, Genesis 2, 24, it's a unique leaving and cleaving relationship. And Paul quotes this passage also in Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 2, and we'll start back at, I mean, Ephesians 2, Genesis 2. I'll start back at verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought, to, and brought her to the man. The man said, awesome. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> but he could have, right? The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is that unique relationship. I would have loved to have been there, right, to see all of this. The Lord was the first thoracic surgeon, right? (laughs) Doing a thoracotomy and taking the rib out and making uh, a woman. But that's that unique relationship and it's symbolized in marriage when man and woman become one flesh and we leave. We leave our parents, we leave all other relationships and we join ourselves together in that unique one flesh relationship. And it's a covenant relationship. This is the next teaching too out of Malachi. So this is the passage where the prophet Malachi says, I hate divorce. God says, I hate divorce. And he teaches so clearly. We can turn there. So Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. Anybody know the theme of the book of Malachi? It's a call for repentance. There you have it. It's a call for repentance. We're preparing for Messiah. Malachi 2, and we'll start in verse 13. We have to read this because otherwise we make sure we read the prophets, the minor prophets, right? This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So we cleave together in that relationship, and this is a relationship that should not be unbound, should not be unbound. I mean, the Lord said this, Jesus said it was because of the hardness of their hearts that under very specific circumstance, the Lord allowed uh, divorce with adultery. But that is not so from the beginning. That was our Lord's teaching because it is a covenant relationship. And then next, it's... Because of all these things, it is the place for physical intimacy. It's the place where God sanctions sexual union. And this is the only place that God sanctions it, is in the context of marriage. And he sanctions it joyfully. Because this is the, that relationship where it can be enjoyed and shared and build the marriage. And out of that may come children, too, out of that relationship. Let's look at Ephesians 5. It's another passage we'll read. It is the portrait of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? What does he say? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What a charge for us as husbands in that marriage relationship to love our wives as Christ. He loved the church sacrificially, not only giving his life on the cross, but bearing the wrath of God for our sins. And he did it for the joy set before him to redeem us. That's how we as men are to love our wives. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, the verse we just read, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall be joined and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. 
Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So there is no other relationship in this world that pictures what the Lord God did for us. Marriage pictures that relationship. There is no other friendship. This, this, I love this saying, and I think it's, maybe it's in your notes, but no other friendship or parent-child relationship shares these characteristics. And that's a temptation among us too. I have to say we have to do the old Barney Fife. We have to nip it in the bud, right? We have to nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud. But that we sometimes we may allow friendships or other relationships to supersede that relationship we have with our spouse. And it should never be that way. Our communication, our sharing of our hearts, it should be to our spouse. Not that we can't have close friends that we pray with and we love, but those should never take the place of the marriage relationship. Okay, so we're gonna move through this because I'm gonna run out of time if we don't. We gotta be committed to our biblical roles. That is our roles as husband and wife. Paul has a lot to say about women in the church Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, we don't have time to go through all of that. We've just talked about Ephesians 5, and we're going to look in depth here just a moment at 1 Peter 3. I always laugh because she's smiling a little bit, so I know it's a posed picture, right? (laughs) But she's loving prayer, right? Okay, let's talk about the husbands first because we need a lot of education. The role of the husband in marriage. So let's look at 1 Peter 3. This is a critical passage for us as husbands. We're headed back over towards Revelation, and we'll stop at 1 Peter 3. And I'll just read verse 7. We're going to come back to the first few verses in a moment. We talk about wives. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Let me stop right there. Some of the verses translate this, likewise. Husbands, likewise. What is... Do you remember what Peter's referring to in this passage when he says likewise? Likewise means in the same way. How are husbands to love their wives? In the same way as what? Look back at chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. This is important. Chapter, end of chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So that's how... Peter is telling us to love our wives. Paul just told us that in Ephesians 5, and now Peter is saying the same thing, sacrificially, as Christ gave himself up for us. Let me finish that verse. Live with, live with your wives in an understanding way. Some, some uh, translations have this as knowledge. Live with your wives in knowledge. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. We could spend a lot of time on this, and if you were with us in our First Peter series that we did a couple of years ago, we did spend a lot of time on this passage. But the things we need to glean out of this, husbands, are one, we have to have knowledge. This, I don't think it's just knowledge of our wives. We have to have that to understand them. But this is biblical knowledge. I think Peter is telling us, because Peter talks a lot in his letters about Biblical knowledge and wisdom. We have to know the scriptures. We have to know this. And if we do, we'll know about God's love and his mercy and his sacrifice. And in that kind of biblical knowledge and wisdom, we can lead our wives. We also do have to learn about our wives to lead them. So this is an important point, too, that's made in your book. If you don't lead in your family, if you don't lead in your life, someone will. Your wife will have to lead. The ship can't be rudderless. And if you don't, your wife or your child will lead the family. But that's not the right role. The role that Peter is teaching us here, men, is that we should be leaders of our life. So I have to give this credit to this quote. I think this was a Joel Ralston quote, and I have to give Joel credit. But, but he said... Um, that our wives 
ought to want to follow us. We ought to lead our wives in such a way that they submit to us and follow us with joy. We ought to be godly men who our wives are confident that we spend time in the Word of God, we spend time in prayer, that every decision we make, we seek God and His wisdom. A woman who sees that in her husband can submit to her husband. We ought to tenderly care for our wives. We ought to, they should have no fear in that relationship with us. That's the kind of man we ought to be so that our wives can follow us with joy, with complete joy. They're weaker too because they're in that situation where they do submit to us. You think about it, that's one way they've made themselves weak because in obedience to God, they've determined they will submit to us and they will follow us. And that in it of itself, they've made themselves weaker. We have that responsibility, therefore, to lead our wives with compassion, with biblical wisdom, and with joy. Okay, so let's talk about the wives. Let's turn over to, well, let's stay in First Peter. Let me read the first six verses of this chapter. First Peter 3, and then we're going to go to, to the Proverbs. In the same way, you wives, and again, referring back to Christ, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Wives, that's your charge too. You may have a husband that's not a believer, but in your submission and your honoring him and your respect for him, you may lead him to the Lord. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. What an example. The holiness, the godliness, as we talked about, the Holy Spirit flowing out of your lives, that imperishable quality, that gentle and quiet spirit of true godliness in a wife. It's such a witness and an encouragement to husbands. So let's turn over to Proverbs 14. We're doing our sword drill this morning, right? What's the theme of the book of Proverbs? Wisdom Wisdom for the details of life. There we have it. Verse 1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. You think about that picture. You see the wise woman. I think it's that woman with the gentle and, and quiet spirit. What is Solomon teaching? What does the wise woman do? She's laying the bricks, right? I, I, hear, I hear you guys saying it, right? She's pouring the foundation, right? She's, she's putting up the timbers, right? She's building her house. That's what the wise woman is doing. She's building her house. But what does the foolish woman do? She tears it apart, right? She's pulling out the studs and watching the joists come down, right? That's what the foolish woman does. Um, So how do you build your house? How do you wives build that foundation and build that superstructure that holds that house together? And let's be honest, wives hold our houses together. They, They hold our houses together greatly. How do we do that? Your husband's a big part of it too. Yeah, using the Bible as your blueprint. That's right. And that's kind of the point of this, this bullet point I've highlighted down here with respect to your husband. Help him. Giving him wise input. And Jim, that comes right from the scriptures, right? Giving your husband wise biblical input. Um, that's critical as wives who are going to build up the house, right? Because the husband is supposed to be leading. And that's what a wife can do, though, to help build up that house is to encourage their husband, follow him in the path that he has set. I can't tell you how many times my wife has given me wise biblical 
input in my life when I needed it. And there are times when she's actually sat down. I remember when I was in training and as a physician in Philadelphia, she sat down and wrote me a letter one time and said, I'm tired. But she gave me such wise biblical input about the time I wasn't spending with the children, the time I was spending at the hospital, you know, doing research and all these other things that we do. But she and her wisdom and her godliness sat down and wrote me a, a nice letter to help me understand Wow, it just hit me between the eyes like a two before because it came from the grace and love of her heart. But it was this kind of wise input. She built the house in that because guess what? Things changed in my life. Things changed. And I backed off on a lot of things and realized she's right. I'm not spending the time I need with my family. But that's how she helped build our house and with her wise input. Okay, I'm going to keep going just because we're running short on time. Titus 2.5, and ladies, you guys know Titus 2 so well. Right behind Timothy here. Titus 2.5. Let's start with verse 4. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And again, this is what they mean by keeping your home, by knowing the word of God, by encouraging your husband, by being workers at home. That way you build the home and you encourage your husband. I love this quote too. Your marriage is the greatest opportunity you will have to teach your children what you really believe about submission and authority, friendship, affection, and love. The way you treat your husband, the way you encourage him, the way you give him biblical insight. And my wife has given me very good biblical insight at times and told me when I wasn't probably doing the right thing at times. That's how you build the family, but in love. And your children see this. They see how you submit to your husband, but how you help him and encourage him. Okay, we're going to keep going because we only have a few more minutes. Third commitment is to our family, and this is to stewardship and discipleship. What's a stewardship? What is a steward? A caretaker. Yeah, good. Somebody who's been in charge with something, right? So if you have a stewardship, you're a caretaker, you've been in charge with some, usually something valuable, something rich, right? What are we stewards of? We're stewards of the truth about the one true God and his works. So we, won't, we just read that Deuteronomy uh, 6, 1 through 9 passage. We won't go back through it, but it taught very explicitly there about how God's design was for passing the faith through generation to generation, how we were to teach our children generation after generation and to make disciples in our own families. So that's the question we can, we can ask ourselves. Are we faithful in that? Have we made that our commitment to disciple our children. Let me just ask you this. How do you guys disciple your children? What are the things you do to help do this, to accomplish this, disciple your children? Yeah, that's one of the most important things, James, is to spend time with them in the Word and help them to see the application of the Word of God. Help them to understand it. And it's kind of those things we're going to talk about in a minute, life on life. As we go through life, you help them understand God's perspective on something. And you help them understand how God looks at it and how we should act maybe differently at times. Those things we do. Do you pray with your kids? Yeah, all of these things are important. There are going to be a lot of lessons about all this stuff, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. But those are some of the things that we have to do as we disciple our kids. So I love this picture. Those are my two sons, my two adult sons. They're 27 and 34 at the time. We were fly fishing up in Missouri last May. But we got together mainly because it doesn't end. It, it, I mean, these are adult sons, and um, the oldest son has child, children. My youngest son, Peter, doesn't have children. But we have to get together. And they both live in Kansas City area. And, uh, but we do this because we try to live still life on life. And we need time to get away together to sit and talk. And, you know, it's just rich because they'll sit in that kind of environment and talk with me, Dad, about things. Not that we don't talk on the phone or text or do we do. But this is the kind of thing we have to do in discipling our kids going on throughout their life. It's to spend time with them, 
to build that kind of relationship with them so that my boys know they can call me and talk about hard things, things they need advice on. Um, it's just just important life-on-life thing. The other thing, we're stewards of blessings. First off, we're blessed to be children of God. That's the Romans eight sixteen passage. We ourselves are blessed to be children of God. And in this relationship among husbands and wife, we may be blessed by him to raise children. It's not a guarantee that the Lord always gives us children in marriage. But if he does, this is a tremendous blessing that God gives us uh, children to steward. And I'm an archer. I love archery, so I love that picture. <laughs> I have a full quiver, but you know, some of you guys have full quivers of kids. And isn't it a blessing to have a house full of children? And again, we've talked a lot about discipleship, about faithfully delivering and modeling God's truth to our children uh, with the goal towards making them disciples. That should be our heart, that God gives us these little blessings that we might, we might build the word of God in their lives. Salvation is of the Lord, right? We cannot, we never know. We cannot guarantee the outcome in their lives. But what we can do is, pre- is present the word of God to them, to build the word of God in their lives, to help them know God. I wasn't saved until I was 19. And I can tell you, my mom and dad raised me in a Christian home. And my mom taught me the books of the Bible when I was probably six years old. I could still say them backwards and forwards, you know. And, uh, but when I wasn't a believer, when I was around other unbelievers, all the things they had always taught me were always there. And even as an unbeliever, it kept me from a lot of sin because I knew right from wrong. And I had still that fear of God in my heart, though I was not a believer. Um, so all these things we do in their lives now with this goal towards the Lord seeing them saved and following him are so important. And again, this is the evangelism, the teaching, the admonishing, the exhorting, the encouraging, all of these things we have to do, prayerfully leaving the results to God. Okay, so we'll just talk a little, you guys know the history of Israel, and and, uh, one generation didn't pass it along to the next. God told them that if you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. And uh, there was the generation under Joshua who served the Lord, but you know what happened, the succeeding generation did not. And then we come to the book of Judges, which is, it's just disobedience, isn't it? And it's defeat, because they did what? They forsook God, and they served the Baals, and they neglected, that generation had neglected the commands in Deuteronomy of teaching them about the fear of God. And then there's that great verse, every man did what was right in his own eyes. So that's the consequence. Um, so again, I just encourage you, teach your children now, leave the results to God, but they need to hear it because I know as a living testimony the value of that in my own life before I became a believer. Uh, the church today. So as in Israel's past, the families are a strength of the body of Christ. I think the real strength of the body of Christ is Christ, right? Families are not the strength of the body of Christ, uh, but we are a huge strength of the body of Christ, and we have to have God-fearing families. In fact, it's interesting because if you look at the qualifications for deacons and elders, what's in there? Sorry, sorry, Drew. Yes, they have to be able to manage their own household, so they have to have be able to demonstrate that they've done these things, that they've discipled their children, they've managed their own household well. Finally, commitment to others, and we're going to end on time here. Um, so here we are in this order. Commitment to the Lord, to our spouse, then to our children, and now finally, ministry to others. And that is in the church, ministry in the body of Christ, and that is fulfilling the one another's, and that's in your appendix. We know the one another's, right? All those things that we've been memorizing these verses about, ministering to one another, as Dusty said in his sermon this morning, stirring one another up, right? That's our ministry in the church and using our spiritual gifts. We didn't plan this thing together, right? I mean, the providence of God, these lessons dovetail together, right? And then the world, right? In evangelism, making disciples throughout the world, not just locally, but also to the world. And we're doing that in this church, right? We've got missionaries that we're supporting, and we're also reaching out to this, this community. And I think this is important. Our homes should communicate light to a dark world. Your neighbors, all those around you, ought to see 
your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, the things that come out of your children's mouths, the things that come out of your mouth, um, it ought to be light to them. It ought to be salt to them. Okay, so in summary, these are the commitments to Christ, to the, our spouse, to our family, and then to others. And uh, this is important. The strength of our devotion and commitment, number one to Christ, will determine the effectiveness of those other three commitments. It all, we said this in the beginning, it all starts back with our relationship to him. And every other thing flows out of our relationship to him and our love for him. That's it. So why don't we close in prayer and then we'll go and fellowship and stir one another up, right? Actually, before I do that, are there questions? We got a minute to take questions. Okay, <laughs> there's always going to be time for questions at the end, and in future lessons, we had to cover a lot this morning, but we'll try to make sure if uh, you could go through the questions in the end of the lesson, we could talk about some of those. Lord, we thank you for the time together this morning. Thank you for these people who love you, who love to study your word, to think about your word. Bless their lives before you. Give them hearts of deep love for you, Father, and passionate love for you. And may that flow out to their spouses and their children and their ministry in this body. In Jesus' name.